you'll please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6. We're looking at verses 14 through 7-1. And Paul has been defending his ministry to the Corinthians, as we continue on in 2 Corinthians here. It's a church that he planted, and he's been defending his ministry there. And two weeks ago, we heard that he has been commissioned as an ambassador for Christ, giving this message of reconciliation, that in Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. And through Paul, God makes his appeal to the Corinthians, be reconciled to God, trust in Jesus the one who, for our, sin, for our sins, took, took on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin for us and gives us his righteousness. And it says he makes us new, that we're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Then last week, in the first half of chapter 6, there's another appeal. Paul appealed to them not to receive the grace of God in vain, not to be made new and still live like they're old, not to put God's grace on a shelf, as it were, and not put it to work in life. So this morning, as we come to verse 14, we get a little bit more of a concrete application of what it looks like to not receive God's grace in vain. So let's see what God has to say to us through Paul this morning. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you have not left us without a guide, but you have revealed yourself to us in it. We ask that you would attend your word this morning, that you would work in us by it, that your spirit would illumine it to our hearts and minds that we may know you more truly and more deeply, that you would change us to be more like our Savior who dwells in us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Who here has questioned whether the dishes in the dishwasher are still dirty? Right? Can I add this dirty dish to it? Especially if it's on the top shelf where it's going to drip down. Or a utensil like a fork. It's going to contaminate that whole little square. All the other things that are in there. But if they're clean, why are they still in there? You know, like who opened it so the light went off and didn't put them away? And we know some of, some of the dishwashers aren't so good that you basically have to pre-clean them before you clean them, right? And then it's even harder to tell because they all look clean, but they're not. It's a common enough problem that if you go online, you'll find hundreds of solutions for this, from like magnets that you flip that say clean, dirty, to little ones that you flip over like an open close sign or little magnet sliders so that you can know. 
but it's hard to tell sometimes. But it's easier by the sink, isn't it? Like dirty dishes go on the left, they get cleaned in the center, they go on the right to dry. If you go the other direction, you're doing it the wrong way and I'll never understand you. (laughs) That's how it goes. But it's in that middle. It's like they go from old to new. Can you imagine if you took dishes from the dirty stack on the left, clean it, and put it back at the bottom of the dirty stack? You don't do that because then you don't have dirty and clean dishes. You have dirty dishes. You just wasted your time. They can't go together. They don't belong together, and it'd be outrageous for us to think that we can. That's kind of what Paul's saying here in our passage this morning, he's talking to Christians in Corinth, believers in Jesus Christ. He's told them how they once were blind, but now they have been made to see. How they once were in darkness, but have been brought into light. How they have been reconciled to God. How they have been made new. How Jesus has taken their sin and given them his righteousness. And now he's telling them not to receive that grace in vain. They've been cleaned So don't jump back in and get dirty. They've been made new. Behold, now is the day of salvation. They belong to this new age. So they mustn't act like they belong to the old. And people should be able to tell which is which just by looking at it. So as we look at our passage this morning, at this application of what it looks like to not receive the grace of God in vain, we're going to see this command to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Then he's going to give us the reason for it. And then he's going to quickly summarize it at the end. So first we see this command not to be unequally yoked. He begins with this imperative in verse 14. It's the overarching command for this whole passage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now most of us are familiar with this verse, right? It's the one that says a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian, right? I know some of you have broken up with your boyfriends or girlfriends over this very verse. And I think a Christian marrying a non-Christian is an appropriate application of the wisdom and principle of this text. And I don't think that's what this passage is about or what Paul has in mind. Paul hasn't been talking about marriage. He doesn't mention it in our passage today. He doesn't actually mention it in the whole book. So we'd be importing that in it if we're saying that's what it's about. So then what does it mean? I think it helps if we consider the illustration he's using. So a yoke is the bar that you would strap your animals to. So unequally yoked is to be hitched together with a different kind of animal. In Deuteronomy 22, they're given a picture of this when it says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. They don't work together well. One's a little bit faster, one's a little bit stronger. They can't actually use their strength or their speed or their gifts, and it won't be pulled straight. The farmer can't control it. One will be pulling harder. It doesn't go right. The animals can't function as they're meant to, and the work is subpar. Paul says the person you're not to be yoked with is an unbeliever. 
He talked about unbelievers a couple chapters ago. He said the unbelievers have minds that have been blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They don't see Jesus for who he is. They don't see Jesus' suffering and death for what it was. As Christians, it said, we're, we have died with Christ, and now we're made alive, not so that we'll live for ourselves, but that we'll live for him. So if we're to live for him, we can't be strapped together with someone who doesn't know who he is, who denies him. If we're, going, if we're doing that, then we can't go where they're going to go. We're going to be pulled away. The work doesn't get, get done right. We can't live as we're called to live. It's almost like if you're driving one of those zero-turn mowers. You guys have those? We had those when I was younger. Two handles. They each control each side of the zero-turn. And your job is to mow the yard, to put nice straight lines in it, to look like Miller Park. I'm still going to call it Miller Park forever. But Miller Park's outfield, right? That's what you're going about doing. But you hand control of one of those handles over to someone who doesn't want that, who wants something different. How do you think that's going to work? There's not much you can do with one of the handles, right? No matter how steady you hold it, they can go like this. Pull you left and right, have you spinning in circles. You're not going to get your job done. So if we're to glorify God in the way that we live, we can't let ourselves be yoked together with unbelievers. If we're giving them this ability to pull us left or right, we won't be able to do what we're called to do. Hopefully you're tracking with that. You say, that makes sense, I hope. But how do we do it? What does it mean not to be yoked with them so that we can avoid it? I think it helps to start negatively. What doesn't it mean? It can't mean that we completely withdraw. That we don't have any interactions with unbelievers. Paul told them in his previous letter that if we were not going to associate with unbelievers, we'd have to go out of the world. It doesn't mean that we're not friends with them. In his previous letter, he said if they invite you to come over for dinner and you want to go, go. Even in the context of worship, he says that they'll be coming in as visitors and they should understand what's happening, what's going on around them. So we're to interact with them, we're to love them, we're to share the gospel with them through our word and deed. And hopefully, through that, they'll see who Jesus truly is and be made new as well. I mean, even if we just look at the life of Jesus, he's known for interacting with unbelievers, with the tax collectors who are basically just stealing money from the people, from sinners and prostitutes. And he loved them. He didn't disengage from them. He spent time with them. So if it doesn't mean these things, then what does it mean? Most immediately in Corinth, Paul seems to be speaking about these other leaders in the church. That's why he's defending his ministry. He's talking against these, later he'll call them super apostles, sarcastically. Gotta love when Paul uses sarcasm. 
that have been undermining his ministry. And as the people are hitching themselves to these false teachers, they're allowing themselves to be pulled off course. Paul says later that these other leaders are proclaiming another Jesus and another gospel, not the truth. One that looks more like comfort and ease than patient endurance through suffering. One that might share in some of the idolatry of the community. Are they going to hitch their wagons to that, to be drawn by it? Or are they going to remain faithful, confident in God's power displayed in their weakness? For us, I don't think we have that exact situation going on. I don't think there are those in our community who are teaching a false gospel and dividing us and pulling us astray. But I think we share some similarities. I do want to ask you what you're hitching your wagon to. What you're letting guide the direction of your life. We live in the information age where we're interconnected so much. Our cell phones are almost always within reach. 24-hour news channels abound. We see this division rising up across our country, especially in the last six years, but just amplified more and more over the last two in the midst of all of this, what have you allowed yourself to be yoked to? The Republican Party? The Democratic Party? A social justice movement? A group fighting against CRT? I mean, what talking heads and social media influencers are we giving our time to and giving our allegiance to whose talking points we're parroting? What podcasts are you listening to or books are you reading that are shaping your thinking and actions? All of these things have a place in our society. They're not necessarily bad, but do you interact with them as a follower of Christ? Saying where it fits with what Scripture teaches, I agree, but I cannot agree, and I will not endorse or go along when it does not. It's a harder place to be, isn't it? Especially when things demand total allegiance these days. There's a cost to doing that, isn't there? I mean, if you do that, you might get called things like a rhino. And we need to be careful even in the Christian section of our bookstores, where unfortunately the majority of what we read is moralism with Bible verses attached. Or nothing different than what our culture teaches without the gospel truly being there? Are you shaped more by God's word in his church or something else? I saw a Babylon Bee article this week. That's a satire site. 
and the, I didn't read the thing, I just read titles on it, but um, the title is Parents Baffled That One Hour of Youth Group a Week Not Effectively Combating Teens 30 Hours on TikTok. Right? We laugh, because it's absurd, but do we not do these same things? How much of your spare time do you grab for the phone and news and podcasts and whatever other than God's word? What are you giving a place of primacy in your life? Can you imagine how different it would be if you spent more than half of your spare reading and gazing and scrolling time reading God's word than looking at those things? Who are you following? Is Christ your life or have you relegated him to this small segment of it? Well, I think that's Paul's most immediate thought considering the context. He does leave it broader than that. Right? The language is much broader than that. So more broadly, I think that not being unequally yoked with unbelievers means that we will not have fellowship with them in their sin. And we don't tie ourselves together with them in such a way that we join them in it or approve of it. We can walk beside them, right? Unyoked, refusing to detour, refusing to come off of the way when they do. That's what we see with Jesus, isn't it? He loved and interacted with the unbelievers, but he never joined them in their sin said he called them to himself. So where are you tempted to follow others into sin? To want to be included, to be part of the group, to tie yourselves with them. Don't let yourself be yoked to them in it. Instead, come to Jesus. He says, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Attach yourself to him. Yoke yourself to him. He will not pull you astray. Learn from him. So we see that we can't let ourselves be yoked together with unbelievers. Now we turn to the reason for it. While the command's important, that's not where Paul spends the bulk of his time here. It's just the first four words in Greek in our passage. In fact, I think if we can understand Paul's reasoning for it, if the, the truth and the reality of the reason that he gives can work its way deep into our hearts and our minds, the command takes care of itself. We'll be so enthralled by God's grace and his goodness to us that, of course, we wouldn't do that. Don't want to turn it into just do these things. That's not the gospel. That's never the message. 
Paul uses five rhetorical questions as he begins his reasoning here. Look at the second part of verse 14. He says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Obviously, the answer to all of these is none. They have nothing to do with each other. One belongs to the new age, one belongs to the old. When we try to mix these, it's like oil and water mixing together when we're sharing in sin. When we try to put lawlessness with righteousness, it makes no sense. You can't bring darkness into a light room. You have to get rid of the light. It's like saying we put the clean dishes right back with the dirty. These questions build up from abstractions, right? Righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness to people. Christ and Belial, which is a name for Satan meaning worthless, which I think is fitting. And then believers and unbelievers. And then he reaches the climax of where he's going. They're just building up. And he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. Of course He's the only true and living God, creator of heaven and earth. Idols are dead nothing, shaped by people who turn around and then worship them. And then he turns it on the Corinthians in the best possible way. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Say, none. For we are the temple of the living God. Paul ultimately roots his command in what we are and who is in us. We're the temple of the living God. God lives in us. That his presence is in us. He's always home. God's temple is where we see his presence. And where God is present, there can be nothing but holiness. You can trace this through the Bible. In Eden, Adam and Eve walk with God. He dwells among them till they sin. They're removed from the garden, from knowing God's presence in that way. Then he delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, as we've heard in other parts of our worship service. And we get this portable temple, the tabernacle, God's tent in the midst of his encamped people. Then in Jerusalem, Solomon builds the temple, his house. And in the tabernacle and the temple, only the priest can go in. And only after the appropriate sacrifices have been made. And in God's bedroom, if you will, the Holy of Holies. The name of it might be a clue. The Holy of Holies. Only the high priest can go in And only once a year on the Day of Atonement after the proper proper sacrifices have been made. It's because God is holy, but he dwells among people who are not. That there's this restricted access to him. But then things change. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, comes onto the stage. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, it tabernacled among us. 
And in his own flesh and blood, he offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for his people. And when he dies on the cross, the veil in the temple is torn. So the access to the presence of God might no longer be restricted. But now we have full access to God. And all of us who are united to Christ by faith become part of this living temple. God's presence on earth. Paul's going to say later in this book that if you are in the faith that Jesus Christ is in you. That after his ascension he has sent his spirit to dwell in you, to live in you. That's what Paul's getting at as he strings together these five different Old Testament quotes from Leviticus and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Samuel. And Paul applies these promises who are made to Israel, the ethnic people of God in the Old Testament. He now takes them and applies them to even Gentile Corinthian Christians. He's saying they have found their fulfillment in Christ. And as you are united to Christ, you share in all of these promises. They're true for you. God dwells in you. He walks among you. He is your God and you are his people. And because of this, because of his holiness, we separate from sin. Go out from their midst and separate from them and touch no unclean thing. I will welcome you. I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I think we get too used to it. We get too numb hearing it over and over and over again. These promises fall very light on our ears. Especially when we stress things like accepting Jesus into our hearts. I don't think we think about the actual reality of what it means that God himself lives in us. That we are his home on earth. I think we get closer when we think about being made in the image of God. Right? We talk about that, how we're to reflect God into the world, how we're to serve as mirrors reflecting him. And that's absolutely true. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But what we're hearing here is more than that. Not only are we made in his image, but he lives in us. Where we are, his presence is. A few weeks ago, Dan quoted C.S. Lewis and said, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And Lewis goes on to say, Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him, also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified glory himself, is truly hidden. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We might look like nothing special, 
but God himself, the uncreated one who existed before time, who speaks and things come into being, who right now is holding all things together, has chosen to dwell in us. The one who is all love and truth and justice and mercy, the one who is all holiness, is in you. If you trust in Christ, he lives in you. Reflect upon that. Know the truth of it. If we live out this reality, things like joining others in sin takes care of itself. And we see the absurdity of enjoining the presence of God with sin. It doesn't make any sense. Know his presence in you. Meditate on that and the implications for your life. You won't treat it the same. Paul has given us this command and the reason, and then he summarized and kind of restates it in 7.1. Just touch on it briefly. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We don't clean ourselves so he'll come and dwell in us. So that he'll adopt us. All we do is confess our sins and trust in the work of Christ. And he makes us new. We just bring our need and our inability to him. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who makes us new. He's the one who adopts us and comes and dwells amongst us. We don't make it happen. We just live in light of it. Because these are true, cleanse yourself. What God has done must be what motivates our response. Because God dwells in us, because he has gathered us, because he has made us his sons and daughters, let us cleanse ourselves inside and out. This is how we do not receive the grace of God in vain, by living out the truth of what God has done in Christ, of who we are in Christ This pursuit of holiness is not this burden. It's a natural outworking of the holy God living in us and us knowing it to be true. Know it to be true. 